invite you to turn with me in God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 3. The book of 1 Samuel chapter 3, and also the book of Acts chapter 3. So again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 3 and Acts, the third chapter. I've mentioned on a couple of occasions that uh, when we read the Old Testament, we're looking for four things. I, uh, I hope and pray this has been of some use to you, because the Old Testament is a, is a difficult place to read at times, and it is challenging to understand exactly what's going on and what relationship does this bear with other portions of God's Word. But if, if when we read the Old Testament, we keep these four things in mind, we'll do all right. And so we pick up Genesis, 1 Samuel, Habakkuk, or any other book in the Old Testament, and firstly... Uh, we look for examples to instruct us. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And secondly, we look for truths to encourage us. And Paul mentions that in Romans chapter 15. And thirdly, this should come as no surprise, we look for the Messiah, the Christ. The Lord Jesus himself points us in that direction in John chapter 5. And the fourth thing we look for is the gospel. And Paul clearly indicates that in his second epistle to Timothy, chapter 3. And so we go to the Old Testament scriptures, and as we read, as we meditate, as we reflect, as we study, we look for those four things, examples to instruct us, truths to encourage us, the Messiah and the gospel. This morning, we're going to restrict our focus, restrict our attention to the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, This morning, we are going to look exclusively for the Lord Jesus Christ. An author of old wrote the following words, Christ is the sum of the whole Bible, prophesied, typified, prefigured, exhibited, demonstrated, to be found on every page, to be found in almost every page. And so we're looking for the Lord Jesus. Uh, The Bible has to do with Christ and his glory. Uh, The gospel has to do with Christ and his glory. The church has to do with Christ and his glory. And so that's what we're seeking. That's what we're searching for. That's what we're looking for today. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. Not I, but Christ. Be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, but Christ. Be seen, be known, be heard. Not I, but Christ. In every look and action. Not I, but Christ. In every thought and word. And so we're going to draw our minds and our hearts heavenward. And we're going to contemplate the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard the expression, he wears a lot of hats? Do we use that expression? He wears a bunch of hats. He wears different hats. And so we'll use it in reference, for example, to the man who, uh, who's a husband, uh, he's a father, he's an elder, he's a mechanic, he's a soccer coach, he's a stamp collector, he's a committee member, and so forth and so on. And we say he wears a lot of different hats. Uh, the Lord Jesus, in no disrespect intending, uh, he wears three hats. 
the Lord Jesus assumes three roles. If we want to understand the Lord Jesus, if we want to love, grow in our knowledge of Christ, if we want to grow in the grace of Christ, if we want to grow in our love and our appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we want to, if we want to worship him as he reveals himself to be, we, we, we must grasp, we must understand these three essential roles. You see, in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates man and woman. God places man and woman in the garden. Man and woman, woman fall. After that fall, God ushers, utters a promise concerning an individual, concerning a deliverer, the Messiah. The rest of the Old Testament basically branches out into three descriptions of that deliverer. That deliverer will be a prophet. That deliverer will be a priest. And that deliverer will be a king. Now, this is marvelous because it puts the glory of the Lord Jesus on display as prophet, priest, and king. It's also marvelous because this threefold role of the Lord Jesus Christ corresponds directly to your threefold need, my threefold need. You see, I'm riddled with sin, uh, dead by nature, dead in my trespasses and sins. That means, firstly, that sin has darkened my mind. I don't think rightly. I don't think as I should. My concept of reality, my sense of truth is skewed. It is darkened because of my sin. Therefore, what do I need? I need a prophet. I need a prophet to illuminate the darkness. I need a prophet to impart truth. I need a prophet to reveal God to me. But you see, not only has sin darkened my mind, but sin has hardened my heart. I don't love as I ought. I don't love as I was created to love. I was created, Adam and Eve were created to love God above all else. By virtue of the fall, we as human beings love ourselves above all else. Therefore, our hearts are hardened toward God. And so what do I need? I need a king. I need a king to break the hardness of my heart. I need a king to rule over me. I need a king to bring me into submission to himself. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is that king. But you see, because of my sin, I have a third problem. You see, not only has my sin darkened my mind, hence the need for a prophet. Not only has it hardened my heart, hence the need for a king. But sin has estranged me from God. Sin has separated me from God. Sin has alienated me from my creator. And so what do I need? A priest. I need a priest to mediate between a righteous God and a rebellious sinner. I need a priest to bridge the gap, that gulf, that chasm, that alienation, that separation that exists between God and me. I find all three in the deliverer. I find all three in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is prophet priest, and king. Today we're going to focus in on his role as prophet. And we're going to read two texts of scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 3, the whole chapter, we're actually going to go into the first verse of chapter 4. And then we're going to go over to Acts chapter 3. Now it's interesting, let me just give you a preview. In Acts chapter 3, we're going to hear the apostle Peter preaching. 
And in what he says in that sermon, we're going to hear him quote from the book of Deuteronomy. So we're actually going to hear from three portions of Scripture. We're going to hear firstly from Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to hear secondly from 1 Samuel 3. And we're going to hear Peter as recorded in Acts chapter 3. Because I want us to put Christ the prophet on display. And I have an ulterior motive. It is this. I want us to see the continuity and the harmony of Scripture. Far too often when we approach God's word, we approach this book, we have a very disjointed, haphazard grasp of its content. I remember a family years ago who uh, had something called, these were popular at one time, who had something called a promise box. A promise box. I was talking to Allison, speaking to Allison about this the other night, and she said, well, I remember someone who had a ceramic loaf of bread. It's the same idea on their kitchen table. And in this ceramic loaf of bread, or in the instance I remember, this this little promise box, there were a number of little cards inside. And each morning, the family would draw out, select, pull out a card, and on that card, there was a, a promise from God's Word. And it served as a little shot in the arm for the day, put a little jump in their step, in their skip, and, and to get them through the day. Nothing wrong with that. If you have a ceramic loaf of bread on your dining room table at home, it might look a little gawky, but you're welcome to it and welcome to this practice. Nothing wrong with that. But it can reflect a a, a dire misunderstanding of Scripture and its continuity and harmony. Far too often we come to the Bible and all it is, is is a series of disjointed, unrelated stories and truisms and promises and other things, characters, individuals, texts, and it's all disjointed and muddled in our minds. So I want to, I have an ulterior motive in reading from these texts this morning. I want to impress upon us the continuity and the harmony of Scripture. Important for us to always understand this. The Bible is only one story. That's it. The Bible is one story. The Bible has only one theme. It is God's intent to glorify himself through his plan of redemption, which focuses on a deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. That's the story. That's what the Bible is all about. And so follow along as I begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the first verse. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Pause there. The author is is intentionally drawing our attention to the contrast between Eli's sons and Samuel. Do you remember in the previous chapter, somewhere around verses 12, 13, what do we read about Eli's sons? They did not know the Lord. 
They had no knowledge of the Almighty. They knew nothing of his power, therefore they did not fear him. They knew nothing of his wisdom, therefore they did not trust him. They knew nothing of his goodness, therefore they did not love him. They had no knowledge of God. That's not what the author means here when he says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He tells us what he means in the rest of the verse. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. You see, Samuel is going to be called as a prophet. God is going to reveal himself directly to Samuel, but it hasn't happened yet. Hence the boy's confusion when he hears the Lord's voice. He doesn't know who it is. Verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Pause there. In the second chapter, an unknown prophet comes to Eli. And he tells Eli, look, because of your son's blatant sin and contempt for God, and because, because of your blatant disregard, you've done nothing, nothing to restrain them. You've done nothing to discipline them. Understand what's going to happen. Your two sons are going to die on the same day. And not only that, but the priesthood is going to be ripped from your family in a day appointed by the Lord. And so the Lord now comes to Samuel and reminds Samuel, reveals to Samuel this prophecy concerning this curse that's about to fall on Eli's house. Verse 15. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, that is Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Pause again. I'm not going to dabble. I'm not going to enter into the realm of reconciling God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But I am going to say this. Uh, This is not to be applauded, Eli's response and reaction. Uh, His response can only be described as as apathetic. Uh, When God reveals to Moses his intent to judge Israel, what does Moses do? He repents and intercedes on behalf of the people. When God reveals to Joshua that he's about to judge the people, Israel, what is Joshua's response? He repents on behalf of the nation and intercedes on their behalf before an almighty God. When Eli comes face to face with his impending doom and judgment, 
And he's told of the impending death of his two sons and of the priesthood being ripped from his family. And this curse, what is his response? It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Nothing to be applauded there. Verse 19. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now I ask you to find the book of Acts. And so turn there and look at what we read. Again, it's Peter preaching soon after Pentecost. And look at what he says in verses 22 through 24. Moses said, and here we are hearing... From Deuteronomy chapter 18, a prophecy, a promise of God concerning a prophet whom he himself would send. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And so look firstly at this prophet's origin. The Lord God, verse 22, will raise up for you. And so his origin is divine. He will be sent by God. Look at his his title. He is a prophet. Look thirdly at his type. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Like whom? Like Moses. In what sense? Moses was Israel's great deliverer. Moses delivered Israel from that physical bondage in Egypt. So too, God will raise up another prophet like Moses who will deliver his people, not from physical bondage in a physical place called Egypt, but a a prophet who will lead his people in a spiritual exodus out of their bondage to sin. And notice this prophet's people from your brothers. He will be a Jew. And notice, fifthly, his authority. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And then in verse 23, we have a dire warning. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now notice verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. These days. So what we have in Peter's sermon is marvelous. If we think of Scripture as a story, we have Moses, a pillar in the history of the nation of Israel, the deliverer, the man by whom, through whom, God delivered his people out of physical bondage, out of slavery in the land of Egypt. And through Moses, God promises that another deliverer is coming. A greater prophet is coming. But following Moses, what do we have? We have, secondly, the school of prophets. Beginning with, verse 24, Samuel. And Samuel ushers in an age of revelation, a school of prophets, which culminates in Malachi. And then thirdly, we have Moses pointing to, we have this school of prophets pointing to whom? The final deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet promised of old. And what we have here, and this is so important, is three great ages in God's revelation to his people. 
The first is through the instrumentality of Moses, the law. The second is through the prophets. The third is through Christ, accompanied by his apostles. These three key ages in God's revelation to the world, to humanity, to his people, his church. Each of these ages, interestingly enough, accompanied by what? Miraculous, supernatural signs serving what purpose? To authenticate the message. To authenticate that revelation that during that season, that age, that era, God was imparting to his people. All of it culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we read in Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the promised prophet. And now what I want to do in the context of 1 Samuel 3 is go back and look at four, four truths, if you like, of four details concerning this prophet. Detail number one, the need for the prophet. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, the need for the prophet. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Now hone in on this next phrase. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And so what is the author seeking to convey to us at the outset of this chapter? That in those particular days, uh, God had, he, he had hid himself. Uh, God had withdrawn. And he had withdrawn himself by withholding what? His word. Now look at how the chapter ends, verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And so these verses are bookends. They're parentheses around this chapter. They open it and it closes the chapter. The author wants to impress upon us, look, at the outset of what I'm about to say, this is the situation. There is no revelation. God has hid himself. God is not revealing himself by his word. But by the end of the chapter, here's what I want you to grasp, and it focuses on Samuel. God is now revealing himself again at Shiloh by the word. The lesson is this. There is. There is no knowledge of God unless he reveals himself to us by his word. There is, let me repeat it, no knowledge of God unless he, let me insert a word, chooses to reveal himself to us by his word. Why is that the case? Why is that so? Two reasons. The first is this, God's glorious majesty. God is spirit. God is eternal. God is immortal. God God is glorious in majesty. He's enthroned in holiness. I used this, this analogy several weeks ago. We are like little children on the seashore peering out at the endless ocean with our little bucket trying to understand and grasp God. Unless God chooses to reveal himself to us, he who is infinite, chooses to reveal himself to a finite, limited, restricted creature, there is no knowledge of him. 
And secondly, man's sinful depravity. And so the first reason why there is no knowledge of God unless he reveals himself to us by his word is God's glorious majesty. The second is this, man's sinful depravity. Uh, we sit in intellectual darkness. We think we're smart. According to scripture, we are, we are fools. Our minds are darkened. There is no knowledge of God. There is on the part of the natural man no understanding of spiritual truth and eternal realities. We sit in intellectual darkness. Extremely difficult for us to understand. Extremely difficult for us to acknowledge. Why? Because in the words of David Wells, we today live with the illusions of progress. We live with the illusions of progress. And so we can pull out our cell phones, Blackberries, iPhones, iPads, and communicate with one another. We can send satellites into space. We can put men on the moon. We can send spacecraft to Mars to take pictures. We can, we can do, perform operations replacing hearts and kidneys. We can split the atom. We have nuclear reactors just down the road. We can build the tallest skyscraper. We can big, build mammoth bridges. And yet they are all illusions of progress. We look at our technological advancements and we assume what? We are advancing, when in actual fact we have not advanced one inch since the time of the fall. We are in intellectual darkness. No knowledge of God unless God chooses to reveal himself to us. And that's why we need a prophet. We need a prophet who knows the mind of God and reveals God. And we need a prophet who can penetrate our darkness and impress upon our minds and our hearts the glory of God in his word. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have eternal life. So there's detail number one, the need for a prophet. Detail number two, the role of the prophet. It's twofold. The first part, the first function in his role emerges in verse 10. The Lord has called to Eli, uh, to Samuel three times. Each, the first two occasions, he's gone to Eli confused, thinking it's Eli who's calling him. Eli tells him, no, it's the Lord. You respond when he calls you again. And so what do we read in verse 9? Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. There's the first key role of a prophet. What does a prophet do? He hears. What do we mean? He listens. Listens to what? God. The second key role, function of a prophet is this. He declares. And this comes out in verse 18. So Samuel told him, that is told Eli, everything, and hid nothing from him. That's the prophetic office. That is the role of the prophet. Firstly, the prophet hears, speak, Lord. Secondly, the prophet declares, whatever he hears from God, he makes known. And so the Lord Jesus declares and makes it very clear in John 8, verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I declare to the world what I have heard from 
him. There's the twofold function of the prophet. Now, something I want you to note is that dare not escape our attention. It is this. More often than not, more often than not, that message is unpleasant. Here's the truth of the matter. You look at what Samuel has to tell Eli. You look at what that young man, maybe 12, 13 years of age, has to say to Eli, quite an old man at this point, judge, priest. You look at the news he needs to impart, what he has heard from God, and what he must tell tell Eli concerning the death of his sons, concerning the end of the priesthood from his family, concerning this curse, this judgment, this dark day that will fall on Eli's household. Think of it. And yet Samuel is what? He is a prophet. And a prophet only does two things. A prophet listens, and then a prophet declares. That's actually the meaning of the word. The word in Hebrew is nabi. We find it for the first time in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Very interesting. Exodus 7, verse 1. Uh, God says to Moses, you will be like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. What? He says to Moses, Moses, you will be like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your nabi, your prophet. Meaning what? Okay, Moses, you're the one who's gonna, who, who's, who actually has the message. But you're going to tell the message to Aaron. Aaron will listen. And then Aaron's going to tell the message to Pharaoh. He will declare it. Aaron is going to act as the Nabi. Aaron is going to act as the prophet. And we see very, a very clear picture emerging of the role of a prophet, do we not? A prophet is an intermediary. A prophet is one who stands between two, two parties. One who has something to communicate. One who has something he better listen to. And the prophet hears. And the prophet declares. And yet sadly, you read through scripture. More often than not, on more occasions than not, the thrust of that message, the content of that message is actually quite negative, isn't it? Negative. We think of the ministry of the Lord Jesus as, uh, as our prophet. You think of the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry. You read through John's gospel account, and you look at what he declared, what he had heard from the Father, and what he declares to man, what he tells man about himself. What he tells man about his prevailing darkness. What he tells man about his hypocrisy. What he tells man about his idolatry. What he tells man about his separation from God. What he tells man about the impending judgment. Oh, the role of the prophet to reveal the mind of God. And the mind of God as it concerns sinners. Oh, the message can only be described as unpleasant, can't it? And yet it has to be so. Uh, the prophet has to declare what's ill, what's wrong. Uh, the prophet, like a doctor, has to identify what ails man before he can prescribe the remedy that will cure man. And if the prophet's message is wrong, if the prophet's message is skewed, the gospel, the good news that follows, will also be skewed, false, a misrepresentation of the mind of God. This was pressed upon me years ago. I was listening to a sermon by Ray Comfort. And Ray Comfort gave the example, the analogy of two men who were on an airplane traveling to some place, some destination. Purely hypothetical. And he said the stewardess came to the first man and handed him a parachute and told him to put it on. Because it would make his, uh, his flight more enjoyable. Put this parachute on, it's going to make your flight more enjoyable. 
And the man said, all right, she's worked for the airline for a while. She must know what she's talking about. And he dutifully put the parachute on. Didn't make his flight more enjoyable. He was uncomfortable sitting there. He began to sweat. He couldn't open the meal tray. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't do anything. People were looking at him like he was crazy. Finally, after an hour, what did he do? He took the parachute off. Why? He wasn't convinced he needed it. The stewardess goes to a second man and hands him the parachute and says, look, this plane is going to crash. Put it on. The man puts it on. An hour later, he's sweating profusely. Nobody else has a parachute on. He's uncomfortable. He can't read. He can't enjoy the flight. He can't sleep. He can't do anything. But he will not take that parachute off. Why? Because he's convinced he needs it. One of my greatest fears when it comes to evangelicalism today is this. We have so many men and women who are following the Lord Jesus for the wrong reasons. So many men and women following the Lord Jesus because they're looking for a problem solver or for they're looking for a little shot in the arm. They're looking for, for some sort of motivation to get them through life. They're looking for some sort of crutch. They're looking for some sort of counselor, philosopher, a soulmate to help them get through life. No, Christ's message as prophet is this. We are sinners who are dead in our trespasses and sin. We do not need to find ourselves. We do not need to get in touch with ourselves. We do not need to understand ourselves. We do not need to come to grips with our childhood and things that have happened in the past. We don't need a counselor to help us navigate the tough times in life. We need a savior, a savior of sinners. That is the message of a prophet. That man's state is deplorable. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and man hangs by the most precarious of threads as God's wrath and judgment builds and builds and builds. And there is no name under heaven by which man must be saved but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the prophetic message. Samuel delivered the bad news. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ delivered the bad news over and over and over again. He was not primarily concerned with problem solving. He was not primarily concerned with child rearing. He was not primarily concerned with our marriages. He was not primarily concerned with social justice. He was a savior of sinners who died at Calvary's cross to make atonement on behalf of despicable sinners who are in rebellion against their creator. That is the prophetic message. The role of the prophet. We come thirdly now to the test of a prophet. And this is most interesting. Verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. Focus in on this. And let none of his words fall to the ground. Meaning what? All that Samuel foretold, all that Samuel prophesied came true. A little later in this book, we're going to read of Saul, when he's been anointed as king, he's out with his servant looking for his donkeys, and the servant tells him that there's a prophet who might be able to help them. He's referring to Samuel, and he says, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. All that he says comes true. Why? Because the Lord was with him, and the Lord did not let his Words fall to the ground. But all that he foretold, all that he prophesied came true. You go back and you read Deuteronomy 18. We, we had a reference to it in Acts chapter 3. Paul cites it. You go back and you read the entire chapter and what we discover there. What is the sign of a false prophet? His prophecies don't 
come true. You need a thousand batting average to be a prophet in the nation of Israel. You get one wrong, what do they do? You're to be killed, stoned. Oh, how I wish the likes of Oral Roberts had read Deuteronomy 18. What was it, 1978? 900-foot-tall Jesus appeared to him told him to build, was it the city of hope, city of faith, or something, that hospital that would uh, come up, he promised, prophesied it, come up with a, uh, the cure for cancer. Ten years later, his $8 million debt and growing, well, Jesus appeared to him again and told him he needed to raise this $8 million or Jesus was going to take him home and raise the money, paid it off. Two years later, sold the place because it was in debt again. How I wish these prophets would read Deuteronomy 18. A modern prophet who will remain nameless was boasting not that long ago, hey, I've got my prophecy record up to two-thirds. I'm right two-thirds of the time. That's nothing to boast about. That means you should be stoned. That means you should be killed. The batting average of a prophet of the Lord was a 1,000. The true prophet of the Lord, none of his words fell to the ground. Now that was true of the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? A man who was attested to us by signs and wonders. A man who foretold wonderful things culminating in his own death and burial and resurrection. And how it all came true. How it all came to pass. And in that way, God authenticated. God confirmed the prophetic ministry of his son. That he was indeed the last Moses. The final Moses. The final prophet in that great movement by which God had revealed himself to man. And that is the test of a prophet. Let me read again from Acts 2.22. He was a man, that is the Lord Jesus, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And the fourth detail I want you to notice about this prophet is as follows. It emerges from the first verse of chapter 4. In the word of Samuel, came to all Israel. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now we'll see this next week. Let me give you a preview. What follows in the chapter? Israel goes out to fight the Philistines and they are defeated. The ark of God, the covenant, is captured. Why? Because although the word of the Lord was going out to all Israel through Samuel, guess what? Israel wasn't listening. There was a prophet among them, one whom God had raised up, one to whom God was revealing himself by his word. That prophet in turn was transmitting, declaring what he had heard, and it was going out through all Israel. And yet Israel wasn't listening. Nothing has changed, has it? The Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet, That prophet foretold in Deuteronomy 18, that prophet typified here in 1 Samuel 3, that prophet of whom Peter speaks in Acts chapter 3, that prophet has come. That prophet has revealed God. That prophet has revealed the way of salvation. Hear Peter's warning in Acts 3.23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. Have you heard the voice of the prophet through his word? For starters, have you heard what he says about God? 
His holiness, his majesty, his infinite power, his, his, his matchless wisdom, his, his, his incomprehensible goodness. Have you heard what the prophet declares and reveals concerning God? Have you heard what this prophet reveals and declares concerning you and concerning me? We are sinners in God's sight. Sin has gripped our minds. We don't think right. Sin has hardened our hearts. We don't feel right as we ought. And sin has estranged us from God. Do we understand, really understand, what we are before a holy God? And have you heard what this prophet says about the way of salvation? That salvation is found in him alone. The one who has borne the penalty for sinners, do sinners on Calvary's cross, and a prophet who now calls us to faith and repentance. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, said, Faith and repentance are the birds of a wing, uh, the wings of a bird that lead us to heaven. Have you repented of your sin? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Have you heard the voice? of God's prophet. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your inspired word. We thank you for entrusting it to us. We thank you for the head of the church, the Lord Jesus, who by his spirit gives us illumination and understanding. And we pray that your spirit might descend upon us this day. Take your word and powerfully apply it to the hearts and minds of men and women gathered here. We ask this for the glory of, uh, of your Son, the Lord Jesus, through and by his church. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom. And we ask it according to your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.